Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm joined by Ellie Gazemi to talk about her paper, Workplace Conflict in Applied Behavior Analysis, Prevalence, Impact, and Training. Ellie is the Chief Science Officer at Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, an accreditation organization focused on improving the quality of behavior analytic services. She is also a professor at CSUN, where she founded the MS in Applied Behavior Analysis program and has been teaching undergraduate and graduate coursework in research methodology, organizational behavior management, and behavior therapy for over 15 years. This conversation with Ellie about workplace conflict was really fascinating. I learned a lot in the paper and and really took a lot away from this conversation. So I'm very excited to share it with you all today. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ellie Kazemi. Hello, Ellie, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, Cody. It's very nice to see you. Nice to see you again. It's nice to have you on the show to talk about your paper. I'm really excited to talk about this paper uh, titled Workplace Conflict, and Applied Behavior Analysis, Prevalence, Impact, and Training. I really, really enjoyed this paper. And we'll maybe talk about why in a little bit, but to start the show off, I want to let you know that after reading it, I'm actually going to require this as one of the assigned readings in my supervision class. I think it's that important and impactful and useful. And we'll explore, I think, all of the, the important pieces of information that you share in this paper, but I really, really enjoyed the paper. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, I do think it's well situated in a course on supervision and definitely discussions of supervision. Yeah. And I'm excited to jump into the details. Before we get into the paper, though, we always like to hear a little bit about our guests. Would you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself, why, uh, what you do, why you're interested in this topic, et cetera? Um, sure, Cody. I, I um, joined behavior analysis actually post my doctoral degree. I studied at UCLA and found behavior analysis toward the end of my degree program at UCLA. So I was uh, really beginning to do a lot more clinical work, but m- I was moving toward more quantitative research uh, methodology work. Um, and I found behavior analysis because one of Michelle Wallace's students was one of my mentees and um, would kind of bring these fantastic material to me to read. Um, And I found Skinner's work and I was in love. Um, With that came this desire that everybody else should find out about behavior analysis. Why is it that I didn't know about it? Why is it I've been trying so hard to create measures, but didn't know that there's an entire community that's doing that? Um, So when I was hired at Cal State Northridge and they asked that I would begin a certification program in behavior analysis, I I really felt like I had an excellent mission in hand. Um, And I worked closely with colleagues. And at the time, Jerry Shook and Jim Carr and John Bailey provided a lot of guidance in doing that. Uh, But a lot of that guidance was in developing curriculum. I was learning a lot about what to set up in a good program. But very quickly we learned as soon as we started the program and had students that what we lacked was quality control over what the students were getting when they were being placed with the community partners. So the role of a supervisor and how much they could either provide more information or less information about behavior analysis during those meetings and during the observations and feedback really begun to become central to my to my understanding of what I was doing in behavior analysis. And that's really how my journey in supervision and leadership began. It was the community partners, 
excellent supervisors telling me what they needed and me um, in every way that we could at Cassid Northridge trying to develop the performance tools and materials and the readings and synthesize information to be able to support the supervisors in our nearby community and supervising our students. And that's how the conflict resolution work came about as well, actually. It was, you know, supervisors at organizations telling me that one of the things that they struggled with was young emerging supervisors or even the middle tier level staff really having a hard time dealing with conflict as it came up in families or within the organization. And um, it this information came to me from a particular organization originally. The leadership were individuals who had LMT degrees, you know, degrees and outside of behavior analysis, but had come to behavior analysis. And they said, you know, we do some of this work in these other degree programs. Have you considered this? So that that was really how the journey began. And then as any good work for us happens, Cody. Then I had this beautiful, brilliant, wonderful, hardworking individual, Chelsea Carter, who joined my laboratory, who was eager to take this work on. And so the work became so much more as a result of her delving into it. Um, and then of course, you know, that influences our career line forever. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. I I appreciate hearing the sort of direction your work took and how this was sort of born in that I, I not to embarrass you but I just find so much of your work is so practically focused which I love I mean that's like my whole thing right that's why I'm affiliated with behavior analysis and practice right mm -hmm. and I just find it to be so practical so useful and I think this article is a great example uh, of your type of work which is looking at very realistic we're not talking sort of theoretically about what supervision could and could not look like. You're saying, hey, there are conflicts in workplaces. <laughs> Guess what? Behavior analysts aren't going to be immune to that. <laughs> we should probably figure out how to deal with it effectively, right? And for so many reasons, we'll get into it. But I, I just really appreciate it. No, thank you. I appreciate that. So to, so to kick off into that, and we obviously have been referring to conflict. Could you sort of explain what workplace conflict is and why it's so problematic? Sure. Um, conflict itself is best defined as a disagreement in values or disagreement in how, uh, how something occurred, what happened when it occurred. So it's simply disagreement in either two or more individuals' observation of what may have happened or how they'd like to deal with it. Um, and uh, the workplace conflict is specific to the type of disagreements we're likely to have either in patient care or in making decisions about how our everyday work should um, uh, go on or the resources we should be using. So it's much more specific to the type of and nature of the types of things we deal with in, in, at work. In your paper, you talk about conflict in the workplace being prevalent and you I think you talk about sort of statistics within the healthcare settings and education settings and overall just it being a factor in in most if not all workplace settings you talked about some reasons that it could be especially problematic or potentially prevalent within the realm of behavior analysis could you talk about that yeah, of course. Um, you know, I was first very surprised when I started to delve into this literature to learn how many myths I had or how much um, I had been told about conflict in ways that was not, first of all, true. I really viewed conflict as this toxic, horrible thing. So if I have conflict with someone or if conflict has risen, this this is there's something bad happening. And <clears throat> that was really... I think the most eye-opening part of this literature and delving into this, and I had some training in conflict resolution as a graduate student and doing some of my clinical work, but I don't think I had taken this perspective. Not you know, you learn a whole different thing when you're taking a behavioral perspective and when you're thinking, how do I teach people how to do this, right? And I realized the first thing is that we have these ideas about what conflict is that's 
just, just that's just not true. It's not toxic. It's commonplace. It's only typical. And it only makes sense that we have differences in views and that we get heated and, you know, have a hard time sharing that information with each other because not many of us have a history of knowing how to choose it, how to do that with each other. Um, the other thing that I have to tell you, which really shocked me, was learning that um, nurse practitioners quite often are not really in a position to just deal with patients, particularly when they're working in emergency situations, um, that a lot of their training is in how to deal with the parents or the family members, spouses and others who are about to interrupt care, who are about to absolutely set the place on fire, and so to speak, because they are stressed out about what's happening to, to their family member. and and. You know, that was very telling because that literature in, in medicine made me realize these are high volatile situations, high stakes situations. People don't have answers. They're worried about their loved one and they want to advocate. But under these circumstances, the individual that's going to be the you know listener to all of this is is a person that's just trying to to help the patient you know and um and i realized that's that's us you know we are we are in families homes we are often called upon either because stuff has gone wrong for some time it's been difficult and there's no better answer or right after people have heard some you know news that the ideas they had, the world they thought was going to happen the way it was going to happen may not be happening that way. So the stressors are there and we're to walk in under those circumstances and quite often add effort, figure out how to do things, you know, uncover things which can only add stress. So I, it just made sense to me that we would be in contexts that set us up for higher levels of conflict um, when I started this journey. And then I learned, I think I had reported this in the paper as well, that uh, this is this has a lot to do with the higher level of turnover and burnout in fields such as clinical social work. And in medicine, that they do these constant booster trainings and have identified ways to help. Um, so practitioners are helping each other because they know the impact of dealing with this level of conflict uh, daily can really result in a lot of burnout. And I realized we definitely need to start thinking about mitigating this for our professionals and our clinicians as well. So much good information in that. I think I mean, you hit on burnout, which, of course, is like no pun intended hot button issue, right? Where, oh, you know, there's we're seeing stats of the amount of um, what do we call it? Um, and uh, oh, what's the word? I'm, I'm blanking on the word, but we're seeing high rates of people leaving their workplace we're of course very interested and invested in, in in finding the solution to that and 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 looking at conflict as being one of the risk factors that could have a really big impact on something like that and i also like that both in your paper and in your explanation you talked about what other similar fields are doing right we're we're a client we're a client facing field arguably potentially even more so than other fields right like we're a lot of times in the home right where like a nurse is going to be potentially in a hospital setting or a teacher is going to be in the classroom setting where they're probably not having quite as much interaction with other treatment team members who may have differences of opinion or might be dealing with difficult things like you were saying with parents who you know when you walk into the home and, you know, your client had destroyed the interior of the house. Yeah. Feelings are probably going to be a little raw right in mm -hmm. that moment. And, and how do you how do you have those conversations when, when there's going to be sort of heightened emotion and things like that? I'm, I've been interested in this topic for a long time and sort of back when it was in, in medicine anyway, referred to as like bedside manner, right? Like how are you interacting with your clients and their care and their loved ones and the stakeholders? And I think it's so important. So you decided to, when, when sort of thinking about the importance of this topic, do a survey uh, mm -hmm. to get some basic understandings of, of what that might look like in behavior analysis. So mm -hmm. could you talk about 
what the overall intention of the survey was and who you targeted with the survey? Sure, we targeted um, the clinicians. We targeted board certified behavior analysts and we used the BACB listserv to do that. Um, we developed our questions by reviewing everything that was in the literature and borrowing from other fields, any questions that they had about conflict. And we, of course, included some of the uh, things that we knew were correlated with conflicts, such as uh, stress and um, burnout and uh, likelihood to turnover. And so we asked those questions. And we also uh, left a lot of room for people to give us qualitative information because we knew this was new. Uh, we knew this was exploratory. We needed to learn a little bit about how behavior analysts are feeling about this. And we also wanted to know what experiences they've had with trainings they have had and realized we might be wrong there might be more training out there than we currently know maybe we hadn't come across of it within behavior analysis yet so we asked all of those questions in the survey to get a sense of just uh if you know where should we begin <laughs> in the in your participant pool you got it was i think 494 completed items which is quite a bit for a behavior analytic survey how did you manage to to get that turnout yeah i think um it maybe says something about the interest in the in the area and i have to say at the time i was really proud i had colleagues writing me and and uh, giving me a heads up that they were really proud of the survey because you know so survey development itself requires that you do some research and understand the types of questions you should ask with regards to people's gender and gender identity and how to respect the participant. And so we had spent some time making sure that we were familiar with the survey and survey development um, uh, best practice literature at the time. So I, I was really proud because I was getting emails from colleagues saying, I, I, I did the survey. And by the way, I, I want you to know, I really, really uh, can see the difference between a well-developed survey that's best based on best practice versus sometimes some of the things we take. So it was pretty nice to get those emails. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, frequent listeners of BAPCAST will know that I, I tend to love a good table. Uh, and so you've got your, your, your results are broken down on tables in a really concise and easy to consume way. So I recommend the listeners who want to see, you know, the details, download the paper, check it out because the tables are really, really useful. And I want to, foreshadowing here a little bit i want to like dive into table three and the questions on table three sort of in detail so before we get into that was there anything from like the demographic results or the second table which is focused on how often people contact conflict that sort of jumped out to you that that you think is uh, really important to discuss um no i think that um the demographics um, allowed us to sort of compare the respondents back to what we saw from other surveys, large scale surveys, and determine if we had an appropriate sample. And that was good because at the time that we we did. And uh, the other, um, which was, you know, asking a little bit more about the types of conflicts individuals had um, and the context in which they had it was also very helpful because it really um, kind of, uh, made sense to us to then begin to look at these differently for the purposes of training. Um, and I think that, um, you know, Al Poling and colleagues have written a paper about how important it is to report on the characteristics of your sample. You know, who are the people that you are uh, doing uh, the research with? And and so I feel that those are important things for us to begin to report in detail in data analysis. Yeah, definitely. And were you at all surprised by the prevalence or the frequency that people had reported that they had contacted conflict? Or were you uh, like, yeah, we kind of knew it would be high and it's high. Was, was there anything about that data? Uh, you know, so it is high, right? So the prevalence of, of, of conflict, when you think about the fact that most of us spend most of our waking hours at work, and thinking about conflict as an aversive, something that likely results in some of that increased heart rate, sweating, and all of those types of stressors that your body undergoes when you experience any type of an aversive, then you know the realization as to how often we're experiencing it as behavior analysts, I think, was was somewhat daunting because then I'm like, okay, that 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 means that we're constantly undergoing these stressors. 
Um, but then when we compared it to general numbers we were seeing in very similar fields, we were right up the alley of similar areas. So it, it just made sense that we were in line with other um, healthcare professions that provided the human care. So unfortunately, you confirmed behavior analysts are not immune to conflict after all. <laughs> surprise, surprise. On uh, table three, as I was talking about, I, I kind of want to go through each item separately and, and not to like get into minutia, but I just think each of these items are incredibly interesting sort of conversation or sort of thoughts around. So looking at the participants' responses uh, about sort of the context around the conflict. And so the first question on there is, I have considered leaving a job, previous or current, because of workplace conflict. Uh, 38% of the participants seem to agree with that, strongly agree with that statement, right? Um, and then another 24% agreed with that statement. That is, <laughs> we, we talked about at the beginning, the, the idea that, you know, this can lead to your work workforce leaving what stronger evidence <laughs> could you really yeah. have honestly mm -hmm. uh, absolutely i mean i think that we are definitely at a place to try to understand what's happening with turnover and then uh burnout in our profession and there's multiple variables that i think obviously come into play but yes i i couldn't agree with you more um the question of I've considered leaving a job because of a workplace conflict actually came to us from a different field. So we borrowed this question from a different survey. Um, but um, we also had a lot of fantastic qualitative responses to this one with people straight up saying, you know, I, I wouldn't go back to that region. Um, so the level of withdrawal or disengagement in the face of an aversive of that type would, was really very telling. In the qualitative data, did you get any responses about people potentially like not only considering leaving their job, but the, the actual field, anything like that? Absolutely. I, absolutely. We saw that in the qualitative responses. Now, what we did not do is a qualitative analysis because we had left a lot of open text fields and had not used best practice in creating the type of qualitative questions that would allow us to do that type of analytics. Future researchers, I really think, can maybe consider um, these types of questions to ask because we absolutely um, got beautiful responses about how a particular conflict at the work setting resulted in the individual having difficulty with the work altogether, finding the entire work aversive altogether, questioning their value or questioning, you know, if they wanted to continue altogether and leaving the field. So we definitely had people respond that way. That's, that's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking that someone's workplace setting would be sort of so toxic that they're not only considering leaving that company, but the field in general, right? Mm -hmm. I think what's difficult with conflict is it's the, you know, obviously as, as a behavior analyst, uh, I think of the context, what contextual factors are giving rise to conflict and potentially sometimes espousing or continuing conflict. But there's also our skill set in being able to deal with conflict, which is kind of one thing we can target. Um, I, I wonder if people would respond that way or find it so aversive if they were able to to uh, detect onset of conflict earlier and to have the skill set to, to deal with it earlier. Yeah, that'd be a really interesting question. Are you at all looking at that research-wise? <laughs> among many other things, uh, one of the things that uh, Chelsea and I did do was to develop um, some workshops around conflict and uh, doing conflict resolution. Uh, we have not uh, been able to continue that work and and, and publish that work. Um, maybe one of these days there will be another fantastic student interested in, in continuing that line. Um, and it would be great because we absolutely need to kind of get at, you know, how much would uh, providing the skills to detect and deal with conflict potentially mitigate some of these stressors for people. In the it, back to table three, it, one of the other questions is 
I feel that knowing how to resolve workplace conflict effectively is an important skill for behavior analysts. Almost everyone agreed with that to at least some extent, right? You almost have, a, a, you know, 100% nearly. So what I find interesting is that behavior analysts understand the importance of, of conflict resolution skills yet there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of resources or information. Like, I don't know, I didn't do a, a lit review on this topic before, but when you were preparing this paper, did, did you even come into contact with much behavior analytic literature even mentioning this? No, unfortunately not. I don't think that, um, you know, I think that we are just beginning to contribute to the literature on supervision, um, you know, among the many things we need our supervisors to have is that compassionate uh, skills to be able to listen and, and read situations and uh, be active participants in, in coordination of care. And we're beginning to kind of identify these other things that our supervisors do. Um, I think uh, rightfully so as a field we've focused on the competence of our behavior analysts first with the competence being focused on, you know, uh, the technical skills and um, the, you know, being conceptually strong with the science of behavior. And, and those, those are important. And I think now we're beginning to realize there's so much more that happens for a supervisor and that we need to begin to, to actually train our supervisors to have those in their repertoire. Yeah, I think somewhere in the paper you talked about sort of the standard training and graduate programs on this topic being somewhat limited. And in my experience of, you know, going through graduate school, of course, uh, taking a supervision class along the way, which is a great uh, course, by the way, Western Michigan University, shout out. Uh, mm -hmm. And now being a graduate program director and, and actually, in fact, teaching a course on supervision, which, you know, I try to include as much content within a single course as possible. The complication is, there's sort of a limited amount of time to really focus in on the skill that is really complicated and has a lot to it. I was, in fact, I was speaking with the vice provost of my university who I sort of directly report to whose background is in business and explaining that, you know, a lot of behavior analysts sort of primarily or not, maybe not primarily isn't the right word, but a large part of their job is essentially managing and supervising. Mm -hmm. And there are graduate degrees in that, right? There are, all your right. courses are in that skill. <laughs> right, right. And we have essentially one class and, and most accredited or VCS programs, you're going to have like one class on that skill that you're going to have to be doing for most of your sort of working life. Right. So I think you're nailing it. Um, on the head right there, um, it is definitely uh, very telling, right? Uh, that that we have a profession, the, the actual practice of is not necessarily how we've designed our curriculum and we're catching up to, to try to figure out how to do that better. I also think though, that everything cannot be done in a classroom. I do think, you know, uh, being introduced to conflict and the importance of conflict resolution as a part of your skill set in a class of supervision um, is, is great because then you can talk about the basic um, area and what are some of the things to do. Um, but I don't think it can ever replace the importance of practical training. I, I can't, uh, uh, tell you how often when we were doing the workshops, we were shocked to learn that people actually needed scripts to mm. bait scripts during during conflict resolution, um, engaging in active listening, which is a huge part of conflict resolution, um, really required um, a lot more training than we realized for a lot of our um, a lot of our participants. So I, I, I do think that there's something to be said about the the structure and developing more information for that practical portion of what we do uh, is also important. On the training piece, looking at another item within your third table or two items, I suppose, which are the last two. One question is, I feel I have received 
the training I, I needed to have sufficient skills to resolve workplace conflict, which is pretty mixed uh, overall. And then the next question is, I, I would be interested in receiving formal training on how to resolve workplace conflict. And I was, I got, I mean, I think most people agreed with that. I suppose I was surprised by, given the results that most people don't strongly agree that they feel like they got the adequate training that you don't see like sort of huge response going, yeah, I would love more training. Mm-hmm. Do yeah, you have I, thoughts on that? Like what, why, why we would see that difference? Mm-hmm. If it maybe I'm looking at it wrong, by the way. So if I'm misinterpreting this mm-hmm. by all means, but uh, do you have thoughts on that? No, you're 100% right on. Uh, we were also surprised that their response was uh, not that I strongly agree that I would need further training on this. But I think one of the interesting things in doing, doing this survey was that we realized uh, that a lot of our respondents reported high prevalence of conflicts that uh, came up no particular skills in resolving it. And that that was the first time we realized that um, quite often people will report it resolves itself or it goes away. And we know that that's not true about conflict in looking at the conflict literature. We know that that's just sort of um, putting it to the side and then likely resentments building over time. And it's very probable that people's reports, this is an excellent example of when you catch people's self-reports, it may not necessarily provide you with the information you need, which is how much is this over time catching up to you? Um, So we were not, we were not so surprised after seeing those types of responses where people are like, well, things kind of resolve themselves and, and go away. The person didn't come back to me. So we would see these in these qualitative responses of, you know, I had these circumstances occur and, and then they never brought it up again. And uh, Chelsea and I, of course, you know, in li- reviewing the literature, were immediately looking at each other going, oh, no, no, conflict just doesn't just evaporate. No, no, no. <laughs> but uh but it makes sense that that's how sort of people would address it. If the person didn't bring it back, if it's not flat in my face, I don't want to deal with the subversive. It just makes sense, you know? Yeah. So it can feel like from their perspective, you know, if I just ignore it, it'll go away. And we're going, no, 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 no. <laughs> you misunderstand. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, you know, hopefully part of an easy contribution that this paper could have is even just mentioning that or bringing up the idea that this is this is something you don't really want to sleep on right that this is pervasive and problematic are there other parts of the survey results that sort of jump out to you as as being sort of an important points of information for folks who are interested Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that we also uh, found uh, quite interesting was who's at more risk with regards to conflict, the knowledge that it really had to do with the number of individuals that a supervisor may deal with or a person may deal with, um, and that if they are placed on more cases and they're clinically supervising various uh, staff, that they're more probable to deal with higher levels of conflict was helpful because that tells me who to target or to provide more buffers and help to. Um, and then the other thing that we I thought was quite interesting is <clears throat> in speaking with leadership, sometimes they would say that the people that they felt really dealt with conflict well were more experienced people. And by more experienced, they meant number of years in the field. So the longer they've been in the field, they're they're better in dealing with conflict. We did not find the prevalence of conflict or the self-reported resolution in conflict to be better for those who had been around longer. Now, again, one of the limitations of a self-reporter or study like this is we don't know if perhaps somehow they're being actually assigned with tougher cases. So it's possible that organizations are, you know, uh, assigning tougher, more conflict-oriented cases to the more experienced individuals. And that's why we're not seeing those differences. But that was the other thing that was interesting is based on the survey, we saw no evidence that just because you've been around, you've done this for some time, you're better at dealing with it. 
which from the conflict literature would make sense. Um, like I said, I think that we have some myths. One of them is that conflict will go away. Um, you know, most people will report avoiding conflict and that's across board. Um, they, they kind of hope that it is something else they will report. It may be a bad day or something else going on for the individual and they just don't want to touch it. And there's a lot of good evidence to show that actually approaching uh, and setting up a conflict resolution situation will situate us as care providers in that leadership position and in that care nurturing position so that we're not avoiding it. But it is in every way unnatural for us to do, I think. We, we were literally saying approach diversive, oh. lean into that <laughs> unbelievable discomfort and and then work through it, um, which is what conflict resolution is about. Yeah, well, and to sort of segue into our next piece here you i think you provide a really cool and helpful framework to begin to think about conflict resolution and so if i hadn't already loved the paper enough in terms of the useful information i was getting from the survey and all the sort of context you put in the introduction you went a step further and you're like hey this is a thing and here's a framework some some pieces that you should be thinking about in terms of addressing conflict in the workplace. Could you talk about some of these steps and I suppose maybe provide a little bit of information about how you came up with these particular ideas? Sure. Um, originally, Chelsea and I actually very much struggled with how much information to give about the decision tree because, you know, there is... Uh, we have been doing workshops and collecting data on those workshops and revising some of our tools over time. And, and I think we struggled with how much is too much and, uh, you know, how to put out a, a, a good piece and then and then be able to continue this line of research. The five steps we've provided in the decision tree in this paper and are, are actually uh, our author, co-author Matt was very helpful in being more concise since Chelsea and I had dived much deeper into this literature. Sometimes, you know, you're passionate about telling everyone everything that you've learned. And he was much better about saying how much can your audience maybe even uh, do. And so we loved having him as a, as a co-author on the paper for that reason. We decided to share the basic five steps we know work, which is that the first step is always to detect that there is something going on. And that detection is crucial because there are times when we completely don't know it's happening until it really blows over, meaning it's become many, many, many months of resentment or many, many, many different things that the person has been holding on to. And had we detected it earlier, it would have been easier to begin resolving. Um, and the other is we detect something is going on, but we don't want to touch it. So really that first step in conflict resolution seems to always remain the same across the literature. This is an education, social work, you know, we consulted with colleagues and essentially pulled out anything we could think of as to prescriptive steps for behavior analysts. And that first step is to, to learn to, to detect it, say it's happening, and then to approach and say, I think something is happening and, and you know, put yourself uh, in a position to say, I'd like to address it. Um, and then the second step always is to be able to identify uh, a good time and place and a way to do it because one of the things about conflict resolution and you know in my own workshop I when I do this workshop I always tell individuals that you know a conflict resolution is is odd because when you lean into that discomfort your own heart rates up you're uncomfortable typically if you're particularly a person in that conflict what happens usually is at the beginning, you might get some denial and there's a little bit of this stance you're doing at the beginning of posing questions and trying to actively listen. And there's going to be a place where emotions rise because now people are getting into the real stuff of what's really happening for them, their real perspectives, why they may be hurt, why they might view certain things a certain way. And that rise means that you have to have given enough time for the rise to occur and then to engage in the active listening portion of what you need to do in active in, in you know, resolving conflict to be able to now take it from that high rise, high emotion situation to a place of understanding and shared value so that by the end of that conflict resolution, there's a feeling of closeness, of understanding of both perspectives. There's a feeling that there's going to be hope and change that's going to occur and we can, we can get on the same page. 
So that means you have to have left enough time. And quite often where we go wrong is we pick at conflict if we do want to resolve it. We bring up the issue, but the time is not there to be able to take it through that high rise situation and bring it back down. So we might do the worst thing ever, which is actually take it all the way to that high peak, high emotive situation and be like, no time. And and now leave both parties or, you know, um, in this bad place of let's agree to disagree. But the only reason we're doing that is because we didn't leave the time. So that's that second step. And you can see within that, I've also embedded that third step of active listening, which is really engaging in stating what the individual stated. What, what I'm often surprised by is when we actually teach people to engage in active listening, how much they interpret what somebody is saying out loud and how much that interpretation can be in some ways offensive because mm. it's not at all what the person was saying. Um, is that the idea of like reflective listening and potentially reflecting back exactly. something that's inconsistent with what they're actually saying? Is that, is that that idea? It's not necessarily inconsistent. It's just being able to say what you just said to me in the words that you used, not in the words. Uh, gotcha. Uh, yeah, it's 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 difficult because especially if we're not in this conversation, Cody, and I'm pretty angry because <laughs> I have some emotion and resentment about something that you've done. As you're telling me your side of the story, I'm going to be interpreting some of it. And that's what active listening tries to teach us not to do, is mm. to really hear your perspective from your perspective. Put myself in your shoes, take the journey with you, and listen to the words you're using to explain the context you're explaining. And to for you to feel heard, you need to know I, I can do that first before telling you my interpretation. Because otherwise, it just sounds like I wasn't listening. I was just thinking of my own stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let them get through. Let them. I want to hear your full perspective before I jump in there and start doing some. Oh, I think I hear what you're saying. And like, let them finish. Let them get it. Is that, is that the idea there? That's exactly it. You're exactly right. You know, get give them the context to provide you with their perspective reflect what they said in exactly the way that they said it so they feel heard. And that itself is key in conflict resolution is for people to feel heard by mm. the other individual. Like uh, that tells them that you have the motivation to make something become better because you're bothering to hear me out. Um, and interestingly, um, you know, thereafter, it just becomes, if I can reflect what you're saying and say, did I hear you correctly? And then add my piece rather than do but like here's a different perspective instead to add my perspective and say it and here are is my perspective and to engage in that reflective you know here are some of the things we have then to engage in problem solving is much more probable because parties feel heard on side on both sides uh you can find a common ground and that's really the re next steps in conflict resolution i think the key part of conflict resolution that I have found to be very difficult when we're training is that active listening portion, which actually is true across no matter which setting you're in. So interestingly, it's also in marriage and family therapy. It's also in, you know, if you're trying to resolve conflict with your boss, if you're trying to resolve conflict with your coworker, with your patient. So that piece remains true across no matter where. And so I think it absolutely is a pivotal skill for us to learn. I wonder if there's any like cultural variables related to that you know i hear i don't know if this is true or not but i hear that you know americans in particular aren't the greatest listeners and i imagine probably a lot of this research is probably american-centric if i had to guess um i i bet you're right i actually have not looked at that that's a very interesting perspective um well we're just in italy so i'm highly influenced by the fact that the italians say what they're thinking they just put it out there and you know, you hear it and it's loud and it's, you know, the conversations occur. And and um, I wonder if you're right. I, w I wonder if some of this is because we're not engaging in enough um, or, or culturally we reserve information and then we don't feel as comfortable to hit conflict and resolve it. Not sure. Yeah. Um, fascinating. Uh, to sort of wrap up your proposed plan, were there any other pieces once, once you've identified, you've you've figured out the right time, you've actively listened, where do we go next? Um, you propose solutions. And so I think one of the things we can do incorrectly as BMR analysts 
particularly because we're the ones holding the case, is to kind of, particularly with parents or families, if the problem has occurred, to kind of come in with a solution or propose the next solution. Um, and the solution uh, development should be collaborative. It should be, you know, what are some things we can do to, to make this better? How can we resolve for this? And how can we assure that this does not occur in this way again? And uh, what are some steps we can take? So it's a collaborative process to come up with solutions. And then last but not least, and I, I would say really important is to follow up and say, you know, so how are we continuing to do on this issue? We know we've had these things that have developed and come up. Um, in my experience in conflict resolution, I find it interesting, the more you deal with and resolve conflict, the more the individuals you deal with are likely to bring the conflicts and open them with you. They feel more comfortable and trust in approaching and letting you know something is occurring for them. Um, and I have found that sometimes those first resolutions that you do with um, a patient may actually be the lower level things that they will are willing to address. And then if you deal with conflict resolution well, so that they feel cared for and nurtured and they feel heard by you, uh, then they're likely to actually bring the bigger issues, the real issues that may be inhibiting them from adhering to, to the things that you're asking or, or you know, quite often in parent training when we're struggling with getting families on board with some of the things that uh, we're asking them to do. So. Um, the joke I like to make is if you're really good at conflict resolution, the, the first feedback you receive from the community is that they bring the conflict now to you. <laughs> it makes sense. You know, like, I think I've probably experienced that myself in a, in a, you know, a conflict sort of written relationship or something like that, where when you've got a bunch of issues and someone's like, Hey, we're trying this new thing. Like, let's, let's like try to work together on this. So like, you never, you don't lead with the waterfall, right? You do little testers. You go, well, <laughs> I don't want to get my head bitten off here. So I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm going to put a little bit out there. And if you do well with it, maybe I'll give you a little bit more, right. but yeah, I've certainly experienced that. And it makes sense that that's how people are going to handle that. So yeah, it's, it's funny that, probably one of the one, one of the results of doing a good job with this would then be more potential conflicts mm -hmm. yeah at least they come your way and you're told about them one thing i have to tell you i found really interesting and i was listening to your podcast actually on compassionate care and and some of the great work that's coming out now in BAP about this and i have to tell you when we first started this work cody was that one step we had in our decision tree was Hey, if it's your bad, if the person said blah, blah, blah occurred and that really hurt my feelings and you're like, oh, um, I didn't think that that was a misstep. I, I remember that happening. I didn't realize its impact. Just apologize sincerely. And then that itself will really retrieve and put you in a good position. And so we just had that step as a just apologize sincerely. And when we started to do the workshops, we realized, oh, we need to teach people how to apologize sincerely. Um, and that the sincere apology was rare when we would put that as a step. So we literally had to go back in the literature and say, are there steps for appropriate apologizing if you identify you've done something wrong um, and embed that in our decision trees for training? So that that was, you know, you learn a thing or two during the time that you try to put something into implementation. And, and we definitely learned that to be true. Yeah, it makes sense. I think there are so many things when we look at conflict where you, you can sort of make assumptions like, yeah, like apologize, like that makes sense, right? Well, and we've all experienced this in our own personal lives. Some people are better at apologizing than others, right? And what there's one thing that's more infuriating than not getting an apology is getting a bad apology. <laughs> Right. So <laughs> if it's if you just leave it at apology, potentially make the situation a lot worse. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So fascinating. So much to unpack with with all of this. Right. I agree. I agree. I definitely think this could be an entire line of research. And I uh, am very excited about putting out this first paper and, you know, colleagues like uh, Tyra Sellers and Linda LeBlanc were very kind and pushed when they were writing their book, like, Ellie, we need this stuff to come out um, because, we, you know, we need this literature out. And I think that there's a um, there's definitely a line of research here that we need to pursue. There's a lot to learn.
Do you have any suggestions for the listeners who are interested in this topic, whether there's any other resources, which I know are sparse, or at the very least, like interesting ideas that either they can pursue or maybe you think other people are going to be pursuing down the road to keep their eye on? Absolutely. At first, I think that there is in conflict resolution, your position does matter. So, you know, when your conflict is with a supervisee, um, that conversation has a hierarchy difference in it that needs to be admitted and recognized. And there's ways to deal with that, which is different than when you are a clinical supervisor dealing potentially with a parent or school personnel member that may be um, you know, angry or feeling like their values are not matching yours with regards to what you're doing for the patient. So um, I think that the, you know, dealing with the differences in these types of positions is itself lines of research that we need to do. And one of the things we saw in the work that we did in the surveys is that there's also a good proportion of individuals who would like to learn to speak to their supervisors or their bosses. So there's conflict with their with their supervisors or people in positions of authority. And absolutely active listening is going to be a portion of that. But I do think that there's going to be nuances that we need to figure out with those. And so I, I see, um, you know, different areas that we could take this to, to be able to really provide the community and clinical supervisors with the type of help they need to be able to deal with these for sure. Uh, a lot of work to do on the topic. I'm sure you'll chip away at it and and who knows, maybe other people will throw their hats in the ring and, and then help you start working on some of this incredibly important topic. I, I'm so thankful that you wrote the paper and, and agreed to come on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Cody. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you leave, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen to the episode. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs>